Welcome to episode 5 of the Combat Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Filipchuk, alongside Andrew Podleski and Jeff Warren. And uh, how's it going today, guys? Pretty good. Pretty good. good. Yep. Right on. Slippery as hell outside. So yeah. slippery. Yeah, it's uh, treacherous out there. Um, I know we got that freezing rain dump. Uh, I think Calgary got some bad weather too. Um, in BC, they're good. they got the really bad weather. Yeah, they got the worst of it, but... Glad to hear you guys are doing good otherwise. Right off the bat, we're going to just quickly touch on, so this is episode five. Uh, sorry about the delay in getting this out. Uh, we had actually gotten together and recorded episode five a couple weeks ago. Not even a couple weeks ago, what, like 11 days ago. And then we had some technical difficulties. We couldn't upload that. So here we are. We're recording again. Um, and while we're on the topic of recording... We've got uh, some housekeeping stuff for you guys. Uh, we're going to be switching up the release schedule of the pod a little bit. We're going to be looking at doing, for now at least, uh, bi-weekly um, up until, for sure, ProQuest. I think ProQuest season starts up um, just because right now there's... We don't want to inundate you guys with uh, empty content. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be... Switching that up, we're going to go with bi-weekly for now. Uh, I think we're going to be aiming for a Tuesday release every second week. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. It's also because we've got some, like, busy schedules coming up with Christmas or with my school starting again right after December. So That's Some right. Christmas plans, some vacation stuff. Adam's working more now. Yeah. Got, got some stuff like that going on. Jeff's got some out-of-town work and trips and yeah, busy work, stuff like that. Work going is uh, kicking my butt, but... Still so gonna come together and try and make some good flesh and blood content every couple of weeks. Totally, yeah. So we'll be looking at uh, yeah the uh, release every second Tuesday, and then we're gonna try to release a video between each episode, at least one video between each episode, and we can look at ramping it up from there. I, I think part of it is we're just trying to figure out, find our stride being a, a newer content channel. Still, we're trying to find a schedule that works as best for us. Uh, so. Yeah, I wanted to update you guys about that quickly. How was your guys' past couple weeks in Flesh and Blood? Man, it's been good. I guess most notably the biggest events would be like the Leduc skirmish. Yeah. A bunch of the Calgary guys came down for that. That was awesome. Love to see those guys. Yeah, that was a good time. That was that was a fun draft. Yeah, yeah. But things went really well for Adam. That was a good <laughs> <day>. <laughs> Yeah, we uh, we drafted in the three different pods. So I think what you guys were in one pod, yeah, and then I was in another pod on my own. Well, on my own with other people, not you guys. Just all Calgary guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just me and Cal- <laughs> Calgary guys. Um, that uh, event went really well for me. Thankfully, I <laughs> managed to pull out the win. Um, came down to a very very tight match in the finals uh, against uh, Andreas on uh, an old Tim deck. I think what sealed the deal on that one for me, uh, I was trying to consciously pitch my Inspire Lightnings. I was on. I managed to draft a Briar deck, and uh, actually, fun fact about my Briar deck: it was. I was worried it was going to be super underpowered. I think I had three reds across the entire deck, um, two Electrifies, and an Inspire Lightning, and then beyond that, it was just yellows and blues. Uh, so uh, I'm calling the deck Value Briar because it. <laughs> 
just it, it was really nice that like having all the yellows and blues allowed me to be really effective into ice strategies so against yeah ice laxine against old him i was able to really overcome the taxes uh to get to the final and then yeah like i said old him in the final pitching my inspire lightnings um the 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 game came down to my last turn like i had four cards in hand nothing left in deck drew into a blue a blink a yellow inspire lightning and a yellow singeing steel blade uh andreas had three health left and uh I had to block with one card on his last turn, which brought me down to one. And then on my turn, I was able to come around, play the insp- or pitch a card, play the Inspire Lightning, uh, fuse with the Blink, and then play the Blink into the Singeing Steel Blade. And that dealt the, the final three damage to overcome his defense. So nice. That was a super, uh, super close match. Uh, felt really good to get the win there. Yeah, glad we could win the Edmonton and the Calgary. Back to back wins for Yeg. <laughs> yep. Take that. Start Calgary a rivalry. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was good. Um, we got some, yeah, some pretty big news. Um, I know we're in off season right now, but we know when our next competitive season starts. So we've got ProQuest season um, starting on February 19th. I believe that's the first, the date of like the first weekend where that starts. Yeah, yeah it goes from February 19th to March, February 19th to March 13th. So for anybody who doesn't know what ProQuest season is yet, this is actually the first time we get a ProQuest season. Up until this point, ProQuests have always been attached to either a calling or uh, nationals or, or some form of bigger event. But, uh, and those pro quests that we had attached to bigger events uh, would award, like first place would award you uh, just a general PTI uh, pro tour invite and uh, a gold foil uh, skull cap. Uh, they're switching it up for this set of uh, pro quests. So you don't get uh, just a general PTI, you get instead an invite to a dedicated invite to pro tour number one. So that on top of a random drop, uh, gold foil, legendary, or weapon. Um, and I know the the gold foil weapon part is, is drawing a lot of attention because we haven't seen gold foil weapons up until this point. Um, so I know people are speculating. Uh, one of the speculations is in Everfest, we finally get some sort of legendary weapon, which that would be really cool. Uh, beyond that, they're also speculating that uh, the gold foil weapons will be weapons we already, they're token weapons we already have. So this might be a chance to get like a gold foil Kadachi or a gold foil Anothos or Dawnblade or something like that. So we don't really know what we're, um, what we're getting yet with that, but we know we're getting something cool. Uh, other really cool things coming out of ProQuest season. Um, so top two get a ProQuest playmat. Uh, there's also a top eight get uh, one of the cold foil adult Tales of Aria heroes. So for those of you who didn't get into Nats, um, this is your opportunity to get one of those. Or for those of you who are looking to complete a collection, this is your opportunity. Um, there's also judge promos. I think this, this is a really smart move on LSS's part this time, where last time when we had nationals come around and they were looking for judges, people were a little hesitant to hop in and throw, throw, throw their name in the hat because they didn't know what the reward is. So we know this time uh, that... There's going to be a playmat. Well, there's two people's champions playmat, which 
the first and foremost are recommended to go to the judges and then if they only have one judge for the event then the other one is recommended to be raffled off and there is a set of extended art wartoon herald um promos so those are going to be pretty spicy as well this will be the first time we see wartoon herald uh as a promo cool yeah, so ProQuest season, uh, very exciting. Um, I know I'm hoping to get my spot on the first Pro Tour. That's been, since I started playing competitively, that's been my first and foremost goal is I want to find myself on that ProQuest, or on that Pro Tour. Um, and like, I don't know, what do you guys think? Do you have any hopes or what have you coming out of this ProQuest season? Yeah, I'd love to attend the Pro Tour. I think I'll travel to two or three ProQuests that are close enough and reasonable to travel to and yeah i know we're we're pretty lucky to have i guess three in our 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 stretch of western canada they're happening all over the world um i know uh the states has a ton i think i heard like australia has like second seven or something like that so far for canada from what i've seen they have three announced for western canada i actually haven't seen anything for eastern canada yet um i don't know it i'm sure they'll have a couple more than we do i would expect so uh, i know stores have until december 15th to post their event so stores still have a little bit of time to to figure that out um and actually you know what i'm curious now has there there might even be an update and we might have a whole bunch of uh canadian dates posted let me just have a quick look hmm. yeah it was on the website and uh I just saw the three for Western Canada still, but then there were a bunch in like, well, I guess it does it by distance. So I was just getting like all the like spot, like Washington, Idaho, right? Those, those ones. So did you see a Portland one? I did not. We could go to Portland. Oh, that'd be fun. I don't think I'll go to Portland. <laughs> <laughs> we got friends. We do. We got a house to stay. Uh, okay. So yeah, Eastern Canada has some as well. Uh, Quebec's got a couple, uh, so there will be throughout Canada, lots of opportunities for anybody who is gunning for the pro tour. I think at this point, the only guys who actually, or the only people, I shouldn't say guys, people who have, uh, PTIs in Canada, uh, Joel Repta, Dante Delfico, and Yuki Bender. Oh no, I guess anybody who top aided Canadian Nats. So Oliver Chen, um, there's a few people out there who can who can already have uh, a way into this ProQuest, but I think for a lot of Canadians, this is uh, their first opportunity to find themselves on the Pro Tour, which I know we have a very strong scene here in Canada, and uh, I, I don't doubt in the slightest that there are people who want to play on this Pro Tour. Do we know yet where the first Pro Tour is? We do not. Mm. Um, at this point, we know a rough idea of when. Uh, and I believe it's April, May, or April into June. Oh, okay, quarter two. Yeah, then that is all we have so far. So yeah, that's there's still still some hidden information there. I know it'd be really, I think it would be really cool if the first pro quest or the first pro tour was in New Zealand. Uh, I where think, it all began. Where it all began. I think logistically that could be a little tough with the pandemic. Um, I know New Zealand's doors have been pretty shuttered tight there's not a lot of uh international travel that's allowed into new zealand right now or at least that was the case if that is still the case i, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head but uh, i do also know that um at least australia i think new zealand as well they're just coming off of fairly lengthy lockdowns yeah i believe new zealand for uh if you're 
going to New Zealand, I believe they still have the 14-day quarantine when you get there. But I don't know. They may have lifted that. They may lift that soon. Who knows? It's tough to see. Yeah, it's very, that's definitely possible. If I had to venture a guess, I bet you we see the first pro tour be in the States. That would be my first guess too. Yeah. The States has uh, by far the largest registered pool of players at this point. So if it's not in the States, that would be very surprising. Or at least, yeah, the States yeah. is what I, I speculate. Do they know how many people they're going to cap the pro tour at? I don't know if they will or, cap the pro tour because yeah, they already all have the invites. Yeah. They've already given out like over 200 PTIs and then yeah. they're going to be even more with the, with the pro quest season coming up. So yeah, I guess the better question is like, do we know how many invites there would be? So the pro like, I mean, there's going to be a capped amount of pro quests. What the, based off that, if you want to count how many pro quests are actually being held, that'll give you an idea of how many people are. Yeah. going to be straight up invited to the pro tour and then it's probably going to be a combination I, I don't think there's going to be like a road to national-esque invite or not sorry i shouldn't say this is a road to nationals-esque invite uh, i don't think there's going to be like a an xp based or elo based invite for this one um because they're having so many pro quests and then on top of that anybody who has just a a, a generic pti can also use it to get into the pro quest yeah or not the the pro tour pro, pro tour too many pro things pro tour pro quest pro yeah. tour the pro invite. quest is the quest to the tour yes. <laughs> yes yes um yeah so we don't we don't know numbers for the pro tour yet it'll be I, my guess is it'll be a soft cap because there'll be the the, the cap based off of how many pro how many quests, invites there are but then i don't think they're going to cap it off in the sense of only X amount of people can apply through PTIs. I think anybody who tries to get in on a PTI will be given a spot, but they have to honor all the spots from the pro quest. So I think that's why it'll be kind of like a soft cap. Yeah, I would think so too. That, that's what would make the most sense to me. Um, I wonder if uh, they'll keep this going forward with future pro quests will only qualify you for the next pro tour, or if they're just doing this to try and because they've got this backlog of PTIs from when they didn't have the Pro Tour because of uh, of COVID. Or maybe they were just ramping it up. So they were like, well, we don't have enough numbers for a Pro Tour yet. We'll just wait. Yeah. But now that they've got all these people, like, you know, 200 some people from previous years with PTIs waiting to get onto the Pro Tour. So now maybe they'll, I want, like, I don't know if they'll keep that where you can just get a generic one or you can qualify for a specific one. Maybe if they just have a, P, a Pro Quest season. For each yeah. pro tour, where they give out, you know, 150 pro tour or PTIs uh, worldwide or something. That's a really good question. And yeah, I don't, I, I even wonder if LSS doesn't know the answer to that yet. If they're kind of still figuring out some of those logistics behind the, behind the scenes. Yeah. Or if they know the answer, but they're just not sharing yet. There certainly could be a possibility. Um, LS, that's the other thing. LSS is very, I think, keen to planning ahead. Um, I think you have to be <laughs> yes, for yeah. this for this game and environment and industry. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, we don't. Unfortunately, yeah, we don't know the the answers to those questions yet. Uh, it'll be very exciting to find it out, find them out as time goes on. I know. Now, one thing I have heard um, along the grapevine is, I think a lot of people are keeping their PTIs for Worlds. Um, mm, that pro, makes sense. Pro uh, the Pro Tour has a $100,000 USD prize purse, but the purse for Worlds is 300000 
So bigger stakes on the line there. Um, I wouldn't even be surprised if Worlds is where we see like our first gold foil fable or something like that for the pri- for the winner. How do I qualify for Worlds, Adam? Um, you also ask very good questions once again. Um, my guess is, well, obviously anybody with the PTI can apply for Worlds. Beyond that, I almost wonder if this past national season is how they're going to qualify people. Like if top eight from each country or top 16 from each country gets an invite. That's my speculation. Um, or even, how do we know how many nationals were held in total? Uh, I think it's like less than two dozen. Okay, so it wouldn't just be, it'd be more than just first place from each. Probably. But so each national event, the top eight, everyone got a PTI, right? Yeah. So, I mean, even if there's, say there's 15 nationals events, that's over, that's 120 PTIs handed out. So all of those people could very well, if they choose, they could say, well, I'll just save it and go to Worlds as opposed to going to Pro Tour number one. Which Worlds, I think, is going to have a hard cap. Yeah. Um, So maybe that'll just be, they'll, they'll just leave it for PTI, people with PTIs. You can apply to join worlds and the first hundred and some people who apply get in or something like that because that was the other thing like for national season you could if you didn't get a natural invite you could use your pti to go to to nats and i know they were waiting on they, they were giving people an opportunity to sign up for um nationals that way before they handed out the xp invites Oh, so because they 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 wanted like for each nationals that had a hard cap, they wanted to make sure they didn't go above that. So that that is something I I see them doing worlds kind of that way as well. Mm-hmm. These and PTIs seem to be like a like a golden ticket. You can they almost are. get into anything. Yeah, any but inv- only one time. <laughs> only invitational events or any invitational event. Um, once you use your PTI, it's obviously obviously gone. You need to earn another one. But yeah, if you're someone like Dante Delfico and you've already got four, three PT, three PTIs to your name, yeah. Or I think there's Jason Long has I think is thought to have the most PTIs currently at four. It's a lot of PTIs. Yeah. Going to yeah. be uh, a f- big name in flesh and blood for uh, a long time. <laughs> just yeah. keep chaining PTIs together. Yeah. Well, and I know like, actually it's funny because Jason Long was just featured on a time in the round episode uh, with Arsenal Pass. So uh, I got to hear a little bit about um, his situation and he's, well, he just had a new kid here. He just had a kid. Um and I know his schedule is fairly busy. He was talking about he's probably only going to be playing Worlds this year. So that leaves three PTIs for him to just use. Because I don't think PTIs expire either, as far as I know. Um, obviously not having one, I don't know. I don't really know how they work. But ProQuest season, exciting stuff. Very exciting. That, I think, though, brings us into even bigger piece of news. Um, we're touching on this a little late, unfortunately, because of our last episode uh, issues. Uh, but I think it's pertinent nonetheless. Uh, welcome to Wraith is out of print. Mm-hmm. That is big news. Um, I think um, that it was less surprising to see after seeing Arcane Rising go out of print, but still, you know, the, the OG sets, the first three are gone. all out of print. 
So that's it. Sad to see what we have on the shelves and what you guys have in your collections. That's it. That's the only Welcome to Wraith, Arcane Rising, Crucible we'll ever have. No more Welcome to Wraith sealed. No more draft of those sets. No more team sealed. Like it's done. Until they do WTR remastered in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be really cool. But, um, uh, until then, we'll have to just deal with whatever we got. Yeah. So, and I mean, that brings that brings a lot of questions into what the future of Flesh and Blood looks like. Um, different formats, reprints. Um, what do you guys think the future of Flesh and Blood looks like at this point? Because we're moving into we're moving into the transition from the beginning of the game till the game actually. I think you put it really well, Jeff. Becoming a true TCG. Yeah, we kind of started, you know, WTR and Arcane Rising seemed to lay the the groundwork for what Flesh and Blood was. You know, you just have your your classes, no talents. Um, and then Crucible added, you know, showed off that supplemental set, what they could possibly do with that, you know, including a lot more interesting designs and opening up deck building for all the different classes. And yeah. now that those sets are out of print, it's almost like now we're moving into... You know, we're going to see the churn of of new sets coming in with various talents. And, you know, maybe in a couple sets time, we'll see more shadow cards. And so, you know, chain gets a weird little side buff or something, you know, like it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. And the community has grown so much, too, now that oh, they're yeah. getting way more feedback and they're seeing way more tournaments and games being played and people's spins on deck ideas. And yeah, well, and it's interesting because with. With Flesh and Blood launching pretty much right before the pandemic hit us, a lot of the things we're seeing happening now, I think we were originally supposed to see happen two years ago. Like, we, we did get a couple callings right before the pandemic, but because there was one in Australia, one in New Zealand, and two in the States. And then we had a couple nationals. Um, but now is... Like since September when we got the first calling or the first true calling, I think, as a lot of people are thinking of it. Um, well, mind you, we did have Auckland right before that as well. Uh, but this is like we're, we're moving into the, 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 the foundation's been set and we're, we're now seeing things grow from that. Um, it's also nice to see, yeah, like you're saying, just all the new, like, not is it it's not just armories and skirmish season you know we're also doing there's pro quest there's callings there's national events there's the pro tour there's world mm-hmm. like there's all this competitive and professional level play yeah and we're like we're seeing the delineation between the casual and the competitive scenes now which is i remember when because i started playing heavily right around the beginning of skirmish season one and during skirmish season one, that was the highest level of play you could really get in flesh and blood for most people because the pro events weren't, well, we'd had a couple pro events, but they weren't really happening. Um, and they were only happening in places that were pretty much COVID free at the time. So the, the casual and competitive scenes at the time were really intermingled. Whereas you're like, you're seeing now the, some of those pro players, they're not attending every skirmish anymore and they're picking and choosing their events. And 
that's opening up space for casual players and people to like explore the game without it being as intense. And I think that's important too. Because mm-hmm. um, unless, yeah, up, up until now, unless you were gung-ho about the competitive scene, it was Flesh and Blood wasn't really a forgiving game for a while there um, near the beginning. And now it's I'd say it is a, in a lot more ways inviting to new people now um being that there's i mean like yeah like through skirmish season two and three it was especially skirmish season three it was a lot more casual um yeah a lot more like we saw it at our skirmishes a lot more newer players yeah um, more casual you know there's a lot of even the armory events like lots of cool brews and and people just trying things and not really caring too much about Oh, you know, I went one and two, so I only got three points instead of the nine that I could have got. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's very important for the future and the health of the game. But for the future of the game, there's, I mean, there's so much to consider now and there's so much to speculate on, like reprints, for example, what are, what are reprints? How are reprints going to work? I know I have a few theories, but. I definitely have lots of questions for them. Like I'm not seeing how they're going to be able to reprint all of the legendary pieces of equipment in the game from each set that's gone out of print now that begs an interesting question of how important is it to see all those reprint all those legendaries get reprinted like sure tunic's a very important one and we've seen tunic get reprinted already but like skullcap which we know we're gonna get in everfest is is once again a hugely important reprint but yeah the the heart of ice the crown of seeds the the legendaries that can only be used by one particular hero like yeah like class specific equipments yeah the mask of momentums and the tackle foundry hearts yeah Yeah. like in a perfect world there'd just be enough on the planet and everyone would want to share and everyone could get very easy access to one of these pieces and they wouldn't have to be reprinted but that's not normally how this goes normally there will be a demand for them and the price will keep going up and people will want a reprint yeah i suppose that you know, to get on to more of the financial side as a TCG, that kind of just is what happens. You know, there are some cards or, and the game is built that way. You know, LSS prints the cards with different rarities because they want certain cards to be more rare than other cards. They want to drive, I don't want to say a scarcity, but they want to create a market. Yeah. If every Majestic was as rare or as available as every common, the game would be nowhere near as... Yeah, and it, and it's way more fun to open packs when there's a one in eighty chance of opening that cool legendary, whether yeah. it's worth money or not. You know, it certainly entices people to keep buying packs when yeah. they're looking for something that's yeah. pretty rare, pretty expensive. And then they got to keep buying more packs. And yeah, and it, it just you know it, it helps drive interest. You know, like yeah. if I if um, if we were having a win a box event and the box all the cards in the box were five dollars or less. I would not be very excited about winning that box. (laughs) Even if it means that it only costs me $30 to to build my deck, but, you know, instead it costs me $200 to build my deck and I have a chance of getting a legendary in the box that I might win. So that's pretty, pretty fun. It's just like the incentive. Yeah. That whole model is just, you know, it's what LSS is, is intentionally doing, whether they care about the, the secondary market or not. Yeah. Well, anything collectible, you need to have goals or like more rare things to be chasing after, like dreams of the most rare thing. You're always trying to get that open yeah. packs for it. Like, And I think LSS does a pretty decent job of 
making like spreading the power out not just amongst the legendaries you know you can have a deck that's got quite a few commons some majestics and then like a legendary piece of equipment and you can have just a great time you know still have a very powerful deck that's very synergy based yeah yeah i think i've said it before on this podcast but i really like how most of the equipment in this game does not feel super overpowered or bonkers like it's just yeah. sweet to have in your deck because it might do something pretty good once or twice and then you block with it and yeah. save a point of life or two and i think they do a, a fairly decent job balancing and even you know like certain like grasp of the arcanine is a really good example of a piece of equipment that is very very good just across the board you know it has a good block value it's got a good effect but it's not busted and i mean other pieces of equipment like mask of momentum has blade break and tunic has blade break and i think mm-hmm. using those those keywords on the armor and switching the values is yeah. uh, is a good way to adjust for power and i think they've done a pretty decent job of that so far yeah i think it feels better than other games i've played where like the legendary thing the most rare card you can open is some like massive overpowered bomb and like playing it just you just win the game and it's kind of like a race to get the first one out type of thing like yeah many magic drafts in times past where my opponent has played uh five mana eight eight haste and i'm just like what the hell (laughs) (laughs) yep how do i beat this thing my deck is full of four mana three threes like yeah it's not fair like mythic planeswalkers and stuff just impossible to beat it hits the board and the game is effectively over but you got to play six more turns yeah flesh and blood i don't there's no card that makes me feel like the game has ended that as soon as it gets played you know even channel mount heroic it's like okay i'm gonna take a bunch of damage but there's still game to be played after that yeah oh yeah flesh and blood very much and that's part of the beauty of this game is it it very much always comes down to the last point of damage um the game isn't won until that last hit is is established and there's almost always an out to play too and to bring this back to the original point we were talking about of reprinting legendaries i think that maybe it's not entirely necessary to reprint every single legendary you know it's only been two years right since the game came out so yeah and i think even to the point to like do some legendaries need to be reprinted um especially within tales of aria where we're starting to see more delineation into like talent specific and class specific uh legendary equipments um well, the print run on, on Tails and Monarch was certainly higher than it was in those initial first few sets, so there are more of those legendaries to go around. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind uh, compared to... Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Welcome to Wraith Unlimited had because it's pretty much been printed for the past two years, so there's probably a ton of those legendaries out there. Same thing with Arcane Rising. Because um, there's still, there's still product on the shelves at this point um, as yeah. of december yeah like it's still lots of uh still lots of product and lots of legendaries yeah and you know certain legendaries i mean not everyone wants scab skin leathers and not everybody wants uh skullbone cross wrap and not everyone wants carrion husk right like you don't necessarily need all of the legendaries to play the game i've just never played a game before where like each set is very specific to like that hero that class like the equipments they use the cards that go in their deck like i'm curious about you know, five years from now, if somebody wants to start playing the game and they've got 35 heroes to choose from or classes and they want to pick what they want to play and if they get really stuck on, like, Katsu or something... Yeah, like trying you, to find you that need mask. WTR boxes to get most of the cards in a Katsu deck. 
And that's where I, ha I do have a theory for that. Um, I think moving forward, probably what my guess is that we're going to see is each, well, I mean, we kind of already have seen this because in, in Monarch, we, we kind of visited Solana and we visited the Demonastery and in Tales of Aria, we visited Aria. And I think as we move forward, uh, we'll, you know, we'll visit Mysteria and that's when we'll see possibly a mask reprint or we'll visit, um, metrics and that's when we'll see possibly a Teclo Foundry heart reprint. Like I think LSS probably has answers to those questions. And when we go to Mysteria, that's when we'll get all the ninja cards reprinted and possibly some human ninja stuff. And when we go to Volcor, that's when we'll see Storm Striders get reprinted and we'll get more wizard stuff. And like I think obviously every set every hero is going to get some support in the supplemental sets uh as they've kind of hinted towards in Everfest. But beyond that, I, I think there is an easy answer to some of those things at least yeah where... for sure they can certainly start sprinkling in reprints in many sets it's just if a set has like way too many reprints in it then it's not very exciting for sure yeah. so it's going to be a fine balance i think too it's nice because so many of the cards end up being the commons and uncommons yeah and i mean personally you if you open two boxes you get three of each common and a bunch of the rares I said uncommon. Those don't exist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like you got three of each common. And so you just have all these extra commons and all those commons are just dirt cheap. Give them to new players. I think yeah. that even five years down the road, commons from WTR are going to be fairly well available for people. You, unless, unless Lush and Blood like quadruples in the player base or something. Which it very well could. If it keeps growing at the rate it's growing right now. Yeah. In in five years like and i mean you, you have a main demographic you're already trying to target in the sense of x well i guess like x magic players is probably the, the the biggest demographic or even current magic players that are gonna juggle both games i think that's very likely to happen um so with with the amount of magic players that are out there, I think there is room to keep growing at the rate the game has been growing already. I mean, even you look at Vegas Calling, that was almost a thousand people. When's the last time a magic event of that magnitude has brought out that many players? Uh, I don't even. I think even pre-COVID, I think the Grand Prix were getting sub one thousand players most of the time for the main event. So that that right there shows that Flesh and Blood's on a decent trajectory already, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and reprints is going to be one of the interesting things to see how it plays out. Um, another one is going to be formats moving forward. Um, this, you know, I guess we can refer to them as legacy products now. Uh, going out of print does open room. I, I don't know if we're going to get it. Um, I think to Andrew's point, Andrew made a point uh, right before we started recording that this might be a little soon, but at what point could we see more than one format? Uh, could we see uh, a standard format or rotational format versus like a legacy format? That because I think there's probably room for for something like that to help create divisions between how affordable certain cards are and how accessible certain cards are 
if you want to play some of those more powerful cards that are only seen in older formats, you know, they, let's say hypothetically Command and Conquer or East Strike don't get reprinted. The accessibility of Command and Conquer for a new player is going to be it's a lot. It's going to be very difficult. Like if it keeps going up in value like it is now, you're going to be looking at probably close to a thousand dollars for a playset of Command and Conquer if it keeps going the way it is. Yeah, which is too much. And so I think if you establish a format that's more, I don't know where the cutoff would be if you take it into for Magic as an example, just the last two years of sets. You know, right now that would be all the sets that exist, but next year that would be all the sets minus. WTR and Arcane Rising mm-hmm. and Crucible, I guess. So you could, you know, have a have a format with only the newest four sets plus the newest two supplemental sets, and then that way, your CNCs and your E strikes would be out of that format. People could get in and play more the newer products, which have a higher print run, so more cards that are available, yeah. and you don't have to try and find hundred dollar easter or um yeah hundred dollar easter eggs 150 dollar command and conquers you yeah. can just play your newer heroes and not have to worry about yeah and i think the demand will be there especially if there is like a little bit of power creep i think there'll be people who've been playing this whole time who want to go back and just play like warrior against brute like with just wtr cards or you know just play some some mech against ninja with just cards from the first two sets yeah, I think that'll be. I think there'll definitely be a demand for that as time moves forward. And then I guess on the topic of reprints, even um, Andrew, you brought this up. Uh, we could even see something like what Legends of the Five Rings did, where the outcome of certain events even drives the reprints in the storyline of the game yeah um, for the future of fab we had this cool idea like once we've visited every zone we've had a set for every area in this world then what if the sets after that started to be about wars between these two zones you could have like some sort of war over power land or something between like aria and volcor or you know there could be this whole like civil war story that goes on and lss is already tracking points that heroes are receiving for their living legend status so what if they started using those points that were you know they can use the players to decide that outcome of these wars yeah drive the storyline yeah for sure because they're already tracking the points yeah then you know now the player base they're what hero they bring to worlds or any of these huge events can directly impact the story in the direction that lss takes it yeah and i think it's cool too that like if they start doing that, so you end up with, you know, the fire zone or the fire. I, I'm so bad with the lore, but, you know, fire versus the ice or the, you know, the earth guys versus the shadow world. And so those are really good opportunities to reprint the earth cards and the shadow cards. For sure. As well as have a set that just drives so much like story and lore. And yeah. Yeah, And it's also a good way to introduce like new classes to other talents, right? You mm-hmm. can keep the talent the same, switch the classes up. We don't need more Shadow Rune Blade. We could do Shadow Wizard or, yep. you know, Light uh, Guardian and stuff and a, like that. These would be good sets to make a new hero of a class that we've already seen before. Yeah, that too. Just different characters in the story fighting these wars on the front lines. Yeah. yeah. It'll be interesting to see... Um, I know with the living legend status, they've talked about when once a hero gets a thousand points, they get living legended and then a new hero will have to take their place. So it'd be interesting to see how they 
cycle these heroes into the sets or how they deal with that it'd be cool to see you know we go back to the shadow realm and you know say chain has been living legended away so now they just you know maybe the set doesn't have any shadow room blade cards but they just throw in like a new shadow room blade token hero could be neat just to like yeah 100 percent. yeah and even even I, I could see them even this is, I think, a five, 10 year down the road type thing where you can even do like a living legends format. Yeah, that could be really cool. But yep. that takes time. Like, I mean, heroes have to rotate out for that to happen. Uh, and I, I, I presume that you need to have at least like two, three, four heroes hit living legend status before that'll be possible yeah all i want to do is play chain v briar all day <laughs> <laughs> with dusk blade with dusk blade yeah. i mean that brings up a lot of really good points about kind of what the future of flesh and blood could look like um i know yeah as we enter this transition period as things start to go out of print it's exciting to speculate on what the future holds um i think everfest is gonna really be a good indication of what we can expect moving forward uh everfest in the following couple sets um and whatever we get next um is going to be lss's way of of kind of indicating how they want this game to be played and consumed um the 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 ball is very much in their court right now i think the ball has always been in their court and we're just always trying to smack it out of their hands (laughs) (laughs) and i mean the ball has to be in their court because they run the game. They run the game. Yeah, they <laughs> got to be in the driver's seat. Um, they can't just be. They can't just be reacting to, to like how the game's unfolding. And I think that's part of what's made Flesh and Blood so successful thus far is the fact that so much planning was put into. There's a lot of thought and care put into Flesh and Blood on LSS's end, yeah. and I really, I really appreciate that. They seem to really have a. Their heart is in the game. For sure. It's not just their flesh and blood, but also their heart is they're putting everything they can into into making the best possible their game. Their blood, they sweat, could. and tears. And yeah, and their flesh, blood, and heart in, in the <laughs> game. <laughs> so yeah. I, and I, their eye. And their eye, yeah. They're doing a good job so far. I'm excited to see what's uh, coming down the pipe. 100%. I think that brings us towards our last point of the day. Uh, we're going to be trying out a new segment here. Um, called the level up moment in each episode we're going to try to go over a topic that you guys can take forward and use to uh, elevate your game and uh, this week we're going to talk about one that's I think been fairly well talked about at this point but um, I think there's always room to improve here and that is uh, your pitch stacking and I know right now our format's our format's fairly quick. Uh, Briar, especially Lightning Briar, really ends games quickly. And unfortunately, we're not seeing, at least in Constructed, we're not seeing second cycles of the deck. Um, but that that in itself is an important realization to have because right off the bat, when I'm thinking about um, pitch stacking, my first thought is, do I expect this game to cycle to the second cycle of my deck? If yes, I am being mindful to pitch cards that will be important in the late game. If I don't expect things to go to the second cycle of the deck, which in a lot of Briar matches, in chain matches, uh, even in aggro Katsu matches, 
um, that is uh, aggro dash another example that is that's not the case so pitch stacking comes with a lot of a lot of different thoughts and considerations it can be yeah as complex as simple as just going what do i expect to happen in the late game do i expect yeah like i said do i expect this to keep going or not uh to the second cycle and then it can be as complex as setting up the bottom of your deck for um a big combo or something like that i know bravo players for example they will pitch their crippling crushes and their spinal crushes and they will and their pummels and they will play to that late game because bravo can reliably make it to that late game and if all if all bravo is doing is pitching their blues they will have a powerful early game and in some matchups that probably will be enough to to win them the game uh, if they can catch an opponent uh, off guard but if the opponent is ready uh for whatever the bravo throws their way uh as they get into the late game they're gonna just draw into blues and they're not gonna have the gas they need to close the game out another great example of important pitch stacking uh this we're seeing also less right now but there was actually a kano build in the early days of blitz that would pitch to a one turn kill end game and part of their um part of their 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 plan of attack was they had to pitch four blues followed by whatever piece of the combo they needed to um execute their game plan and they had to do it in in a very specific order in order to to enact that game plan and then they had to survive long enough to make it to the end game so yeah what a a lot to dip into there um right off the bat do you guys have any any big thoughts yeah if i'm playing briar and i'm trying to go wide i have to be really careful and like you're saying figure out if the game is going to get to the second cycle of my deck or not if i'm playing against like some old him or bravo that's doing a really good job of blocking almost all the damage i'm putting out that's when i start to consider um pitch stacking like all my stings of sorceries and ball lightnings to the bottom of my deck to have like a crazy late game turn that just goes so tall and so wide and another thing to that too when you're playing aggro into these control or these fatigue decks if the whole first half of the game i'm only playing all my red cards and only pitching like blue cards to fund for this once i get to that second cycle of my deck the rest of my deck's just only going to be blue cards and they're going to have a much easier time fighting off my advances and living longer and one thing that does happen um in my playing so far is that a lot of the time your deck is built where all your all your best attacks are all red attacks so of course you know you're playing those out in the early game and you know into the mid game you're still playing them out and then my deck is typically constructed where i'm not running a lot of the yellow or blue attacks because they don't hit those break points you know it's like a rift bind is uh, well, maybe Riftbind's a bad example, but I mean, it's a yellow one for two, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not really a great attack to be playing in the early game if I can't pump it up past, you know, past three points. But then the late game, you know, I've pitched that Riftbind. I wanted to pitch it early, so I get to that late game and now I can, you know, play three non-attacks, play my Riftbind and it's coming in for five. But a lot of attacks don't work like that. You know, a lot of, um, you know, in, in Lexi, for example, all the zero cost arrows just attack for three, right? Whereas the one cost ones at, at yellow, sorry, they all attack for three or the one cost attack for four. All the blues are two and three. So 
you don't really run a lot of the blue the blue arrow cards because they just they don't hit a break point and you know they're really bad to play early game and you need a high density of arrows to keep applying that pressure right so by the time you get to the second cycle of your deck you've pitched all your blues all those blues are non-attack cards so you're staring at your hand and it's like three non-attacks and then like your yellow arrow that you pitched and you're like holy crap like how am i supposed to finish the game you know it's almost like that second cycle instead of only being a little bit less powerful is just like it's like i I fell off a cliff and now i have nothing left in my deck no gas in the tank so and that that right there helps point out the importance of being mindful of of pitching those reds for the late game yeah now i know a lot of people think about pitching and they think oh god how do i how do I remember every card I've pitched or whatever? Uh, how do I consciously plan for that late game? Cause I, I, and I, I totally admit like when I first started thinking about it, that, uh, the idea of being able to track your pitch, track your opponent's pitch, plan for the late game while playing the game, like all that can, can seem incredibly overwhelming. Um, and th- it doesn't have to be though. The reality with pitch stacking, um, now it's a muscle, just like uh, anything else. It's something you have to do repetitively and do with with intention. And it will you will get better at it and it will get easier. But beyond that, pitch stacking can be something that can be very simple as well. It can be as simple as just if you don't want to be that, if, if you don't feel the need to be that, uh, high-level competitive player who's always got every single move meticulously planned out and you just kind of want to play your deck, it can be as simple as going, okay, I expect this game to go late. Uh, I'm just going to pitch one or two reds along with some blues so that when the game goes late, I know I have the card I need and I know I have the resources I need to execute that card. Um, if you want to take it a, a step further, uh, I know a good starting point is... Not paying attention, not paying attention to every single card you pitch, but paying attention to the colors of the cards you pitch. Uh, so you can be mindful of yes, these are the power reds I've pitched, but I've pitched it in order of like blue, blue, red, blue, red. Like just remembering the colors that can be a great starting point. And then furthermore, um, take it take it in bite size bite size chunks. Don't. Don't be like meticulously right off the bat tracking your pitch and your opponent's pitch and what have you like that. That's a lot of information to take in when you're still trying to figure stuff out. You can very much just be mindful of your own pitch and scale up to um, to, to tracking your opponents. I, I think one thing that is important though is is the the intent and the purpose in doing it um, deliberately, like. If you're not intentionally thinking about planning that pitch out, you're you're gonna just inadvertently play out your reds when you get them and pitch your blues, and you're gonna dilute the strength of your deck. And in that late game, you're not gonna have the power you need. So yeah, to further what you're saying, sorry to cut you off. Oh no, Adam, that's all good. Um, I'm not trying to memorize my entire deck when I'm pitch stacking. I'm just trying to remember like the last couple cards that went to the bottom of my deck and then put synergistic things next to them. Yeah. So that could be blues next to reds, or it could be like ball lightnings next to sting of sorceries or non-attacks next to a rift bind. 
Yeah. Or like even, yeah, to, and to further that point, like when I'm playing Briar into a, a, a guardian, the only thing I'm actively paying attention to with my pitch is, do I have a sting to pitch? Do I have a ball lightning to pitch? Because if I can pitch those, I will. And beyond that, um, yeah. yeah. And it's actually very easy in like the lightning briar lists because you're not pitching for most of the, the game anyways. Exactly. So when you do have that card to pitch, you can, it's fairly easy to keep track of, of what you got. Yeah. Going and it's there. the thing that stays on the bottom for the next three turns while you're not pitching. And then when you find the next lightning or sting of sorcery, it's very easy to just pitch to like your gloves or your sword or something. Yeah. So I think too, um, another thing to consider is like if you have a two cost attack you're like well i don't necessarily need a blue with this i'll just pitch a yellow with it mm-hmm. you know and you can play out you can decide what you're going to do with your hand right now and then what you're going to do with the rest of your hand in 10 turns when you get back to that second cycle yeah yeah um i know beyond that some ideas to then take it to the next level you um you can keep track of the fact that you're, uh, the, the amount of cards you've pitched and know that you're always going to draw cards in hands of four. So then if you can remember how many cards you've pitched versus how many cards are left in your deck, you can subtract the amount of cards pitched from the amount of cards in your deck. And that tells you exactly how many cards you have until you're, until you cycle back to your pitch. So the probably the, the steps are, I think step one is just being mindful of the fact that if the game's going to go late, pitch some reds. Step two is to start being mindful of your cards you're pitching with those reds. Step three is to then be mindful of when you're going to hit your pitch. And step four is to be mindful of your opponent's pitch. I think um, in step four, being mindful of our opponent's pitch, that if you're playing a more defensive deck, um, even just pretty like bare bones looking at and saying, okay, well, my opponent is playing out all the reds. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to block as much as I possibly can stop as much damage as possible, because I know when they get back to their second cycle, they're going to be so much less powerful and I'm going to mm-hmm. really be able to turn the corner block with two cards, come up with my weapon arsenal card, just repeat that until the game is over. But if they're setting up, you know, taking some turns that are maybe a little less powerful, I don't have to block out. I'm going to want to be a little more, you know, maybe I take a little bit more damage now so that I have better defending power later on in the game. You know, pitch some defense reactions if I don't absolutely need to use them right now. I can just block with a couple cards, leak some damage, come up with the with the Winter's Whale or whatever, pitch a defense reaction to the bottom and save it for, for a future turn. Yeah, that's a really good point too. Uh, so maybe, uh, maybe paying attention to your opponent's pitch is step two then. I think it depends on what deck you're playing. If That's you're more fair. defensive, you want to do that. If you're just all out aggro, then maybe you can pay a little less attention to it. Yeah. Um, you can, it's still a good idea to just, you don't have to track, you know, what order they're playing, how many yellows and exactly how many cards they're putting on the bottom. But just, yeah, just thinking about like, okay, well, you know, I'm coming in kind of full throttle and they're blocking most of it. So maybe it's time for me to shift gears and start trying to set up for the late game and, you know, taking a, you know, I won't play this red now, I'll save it for later. And and then that comes back to tracking your own pitch. And, and yeah. so using what your opponent is pitching and how they're playing to determine how you're going to gauge the game, you're going to make adjustments on the fly. For sure. Um, yeah, no, those are really good points. Um, 
Before we wrap up here, did you guys have any more thoughts on pitch tracking? Any more thoughts on anything else we've talked about today? I know that I need to get better at pitch tracking. Oh, you and I both. It's um, it's it's something I'm I'm constantly working on. Um, it's probably the number one thing on my list of skills to improve. It um, can be really addicting to just slam the most optimal hand every single every single turn and just like try and push as much damage as possible and i'm sure that's lost me many games <laughs> for sure yeah because then you as you if you can anticipate yeah if you if you don't anticipate going into the late game and then you draw into that handful of blues and i know some people will be like oh i got super unlucky and i drew into a handful of blues when i needed something powerful and it's like no that wasn't luck that was based on i pitched eight blues in a row at the start of the game that, <laughs> that led me to this moment <laughs> yeah exactly and i think that is that is an all-encompassing thought for a, a really good way to improve your your ability as a flesh and blood player. Whether that is making the pro tour or whether that is you know just doing better at your local armories. Um, if you're paying attention to your pitch, to your opponent's pitch, if you're employing those kind of tricks we've just talked about, that can that can do a lot to elevate your game. Absolutely. Well, I think that brings us to the end of episode five of the Combat Chain podcast. Please, if you haven't already, uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, we're also on Twitter um, at the Combat Chain or twitter.com forward slash the Combat Chain. Um, we are on every major media platform. Yeah, whatever, however you take in podcasts, if you are on Apple Music, if you're on Spotify, if you're on iHeartRadio, if you're on, I don't know, uh, whatever platform you're on, if you'd also take the time to to shoot us a review, um, that, that goes a long way. It helps other people start to see our content and hopefully get us out there a little bit more. Keep your eyes peeled for uh, some new videos that will be coming out hopefully pretty soon. Yeah. Looking to maybe do some gameplay and just start cranking out the content and at a reasonable pace <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah very exciting but I think until next week we're closing the combat chain Ha, ha, ha.